Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today's guest, you know, has an amazing journey, an amazing journey to tell, you know, from building, scaling, from turning things around, from traveling around the world, many, many lessons learned, and definitely he's going to be sharing them with us. So without further ado, Steve Fambro, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Hey, thank you for having me on, Alejandro. So born in College Park in Georgia. So how was life growing up there? You know, I had a fantastic childhood. I mean, we... It's before cell phones, of course, even before cordless phones, I'm ashamed to admit, you know, is growing up as kids, we, we played outside, we rode our bikes everywhere. Uh, we had to come in when the street lights came on and that was our, you know, that was our cue. Uh, it was, I think, more of a carefree world than I really wish I was able to give my children that kind of, of life growing up. But it's, it's, it's difficult in, in today's age. So even you had your first job, you had, you were flipping burgers at McDonald's. Is that right? That's right. Uh, when I was six, I, I worked odd jobs before that. I worked in a tire warehouse and I cut grass and uh, stuff like that. But the first sort of proper job uh, was was cooking hamburgers at McDonald's. I was 16. And I say, you don't know how to do anything until you've made or make anything until you've made thousands or tens of thousands of something. And even today, I still draw back on that job where it, I think at the time, it really teaches you to think ahead of things. You know, when when you're making thousands of burgers, it's not as straightforward as you think. You have to plan ahead. You have to make sure materials are there, that uh, the material can flow and et cetera. And so it's a great, it was a great learning experience. So here you are already making, you know, some money. Uh, and uh, basically, instead of like maybe following the traditional path, you just decide to join the army and off you go. Yeah. You know, a lot of my friends went to university and, um, and I wanted to go, but, um, to be honest, I was uh, I, I was an average student in high school. I didn't really I didn't really put the effort into my schoolwork, and I would pay for that later in university by having to start from scratch with basic math uh, in my university program to get my bachelor of science in electrical engineering. I realized at the time my parents probably would have paid for me to go to the university, but uh, I felt that I would have been wasting their money, and I, I couldn't have done it good conscience. And also staying locally and Maybe I thought at the time I wanted to work as an auto mechanic uh, because I love working on cars. I was working on cars since I was, you know, as young as I can remember. 
I thought the Army would at least give me the opportunity to, to see the world. And, and with the GI Bill, I could maybe go to college later when I was a little bit more mature. And, um, and that's what I did. So obviously when you were doing your journey uh, in the Army and, and you visited places like Germany and things like that, you start to really, you know, develop this this incredible passion, and and you ended up getting your degree. But it was in in electronics and everything that is elect electrical. So so how did you started to develop the love for that? Well, when I I went to um, uh, an electronic school in the army, uh, calibration and uh, test equipment repair calibration school, and um, at the time, it was a very advanced school. It was a nine month school, which is long for the army. Um, most of the schools are in weeks or months. And uh, we learned how to repair electronic equipment down to the component level. Well, and, and, and I loved it, by the way. I loved that job. But in the short time I was there, I saw the equipment being replaced by small circuit cards. And, and, uh, and there was no repair. You'd simply plug them in to a fixture and a red light or green light would turn on. It would tell you to throw the card away. And, and I saw the whole infrastructure of my industry and my schooling basically going away, being made, you know, obsolete, right? I mean, right before my very eyes. And so I just said, I, I should be on the design side of this stuff rather than the user operator side of this stuff. If I want to have any hope of, uh, of future growth and future opportunity. And so that, that kind of steered me into electronics um, as an industry. And then once I got settled uh, back in the U.S., that's when I pulled the trigger, so to speak, to uh, to go to university. And uh, I went to University of Utah. I spent five years there full time, even during the summers, uh, to finish my program, Bachelor of Science Electrical Engineering, 2001. And then obviously you started working as an electrical engineer, which was the segue into what would be your first business, the original Aptera. So, so tell us about that incubation, that bringing, you know, to life, you know, type of process. How was that for you? I think I was the, maybe the first or second electrical engineer hired uh, at this biotech company, uh, Illumina here in San Diego. And I was hired out of university before I even graduated. So I had a job lined up, everything, of course, when I, when I graduated. I worked for a very talented, very talented boss and with a very talented team who let us try great things and imagine things that were maybe impossible. And the electrical engineering degree I found gave me a great toolbox to solve abstract problems, complicated problems where I could immerse myself in math for hours, days, weeks to understand a problem and, and solve it. And so uh, we built robots that, that made DNA, which then would go to be used for genetic discovery and um, things like 23andMe and, and stuff like that. It was very rewarding, but uh, after five years, I, I wanted a new challenge. And at the same time, I'd been building this idea of a car, of a, of a high-range electric vehicle in my garage, and I decided that I wanted to do it full-time. So I wrote a business plan and um, got it funded. And, and uh, actually, I did that after I quit my job, but I, my wife was pregnant at the time, and uh, I came home and I told her, I said, honey, I, I want to start a car company. And I couldn't believe she was, uh, she was just in a really good mood. She said, okay, honey, you know, whatever you want to do. So I sold my stock to fund the company. I gave myself, uh, I think, six months, you know, to, to get funding and to get some traction before I would go back to the workforce. And within a couple of weeks, we had our first term sheet. And uh, within a month, we had money in the bank and we were a new company. So it was my first startup ever. So how was that for you? I mean, what were the early days like? 
well, the early days, you know, before kids, uh, my, my daughter was born several months after we got our first funding and it was, you know, 18 hour days and, and loving every minute of it. Uh, and, and that, that's what it was like through subsequent rounds of fundraising as we got bigger and, and made more progress. Uh, we decided that to have a chance at getting this, uh, big, uh, government loan, the ATVM loan, uh, that the same one that Tesla got, the board felt that we needed a quote, professional automotive team, some, some team management team from Detroit with high volume experience. And so we went along with that and uh, brought those team members in. I helped interview uh, the CEO and some of them. And um, I think we all, I think everybody gave it their best, but uh, after a year, it, it just didn't work out. And so Chris and I left and uh, we, Chris started a, a battery company, Flux Power. He, I think they just um, uplisted on the NASDAQ last year. And um, I started FamGrow, and that took me to the Middle East. You know, it's interesting because there is this book from Jim Collins that is a good to great, and he analyzes companies and, and how they perform over time. And the main difference of companies that still have the founders involved versus those that don't, uh, and also the ones that, you know, put together a very good succession plan. But it seems that the companies that end up, you know, putting aside the founder and bringing, you know, new, fresh, you know, management or whatever you want to call it, they tend to not perform so well. So I guess, what did you learn from this experience of you guys, the founders being put aside and having, you know, fresh air coming in? Well, one of the things I learned is, uh, you know, there's a book, uh, I mean, it's written in the 1500s by uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, the prince. My synopsis now, having having done deals all over the world, is, is uh, that's how the world works in that book. As, as Machiavelli describes it. It's not how I want it to work. It's not how I want to raise my children to behave. But I think in truth, that is how the world works. And I had a very naive uh, understanding at that time of how the world works and how you know people who have climbed their way up in the corporate ladder uh, have got there. And so I was in a very naive position really to, I think, play an integral part with the management team simply because of me being the sort of founder in my first startup versus people who had much more political and corporate skill than, than I did. I would say it, it really wasn't a good fit. And I don't know. I mean, sometimes it can be a good fit. And that's how it was sold to us. But uh, it wasn't a good fit. So I guess my lesson learned there is um, I would have done everything I could to have at least postponed the professional management team until more of, of the important DNA could have been transcribed into the company and we got further along in the business so that there was less risk of it being sort of disturbed as, it, as you know, what happened. So you guys leave, uh, the company ends up getting liquidated, uh, and then you go and start FarmGrow, but eventually FarmGrow takes a different turn that takes you to the Middle East. So what happened there? Yeah, so I started FamGrow again in my garage. Uh, I'm I'm a foodie. I love to cook, eat, make food, talk about food. In fact, when I traveled in the Middle East, in uh, Armenia, Hong Kong, whatever, even with Google Translate, I would I would always strike up a conversation, you know, with the taxi driver, with you know maybe the guard at the palace, or anything about food. Like, hey, what was your favorite food growing up? You know, what food does your mom make that you miss? Stuff like that, because food unifies everybody. doesn't matter what your political leaning, economic class, you can always make a conversation about food. 
And so uh, it was no surprise to me, you know, that I wanted to, to grow it. And I wanted to grow kale in particular, and I couldn't in my garden uh, because the aphids would get to it. And I couldn't use pesticides because my daughter loved to play around in it. That turned me into turned me on to hydroponics, uh, and so I started growing them in my garage. And I, then I started thinking about how would you scale it, and then how would you automate it, and then what would some IP be around that, some technology to make that happen, and wrote a business plan and, and got it funded. And we raised about almost nine, about nine million dollars, and we demonstrated an indoor farm uh, in Michigan, also here in San Diego and Oceanside. And we had retail clients like Whole Foods. We had wholesale clients. Um, we had a fantastic product that people love. But I think the economics of scaling in this country, uh, just it just didn't work out. The, you know, the, the competition uh, that you face from high quality, really high quality produce that's grown in greenhouses in Mexico and other places, is is really hard to compete against. And so um, I think it was it is an idea that has merit in certain places, but um, I've almost gone back full circle to you know trying to find ways to grow things in the soil and outdoors and using as much of nature as par- as possible as opposed to you know excluding it. Uh, but when when that wound down, uh, someone from one of the family offices uh, reached out to me. And start a conversation, and I flew out there to talk a couple of times back and forth, and they made me an offer. We negotiated a deal, and uh, I moved my family out there and, and uh, lived there and worked for them for two years, and and it was great. Uh, I was able to take my family to, uh, gosh, we vacation in maybe seven different countries the time we were there. Uh, we'd never be able to do that here because the cost, the distance, are so long. You know, we were able to to do that there, and uh, I was able to to run some really big projects there, and. Uh, from from scratch, you know, from from desert sand to a complete project, and uh, really demonstrate this kind of stuff at scale, and uh, develop uh, export revenue channels to Singapore and Hong Kong for for local grown produce. So it was uh, it was a rewarding experience. So while you were obviously turning the page on on your entrepreneurial perhaps a path for a bit, because here you were working really on the other side, you know, more on the investment side, perhaps. Uh, you really got an insight into, you know, how you deal with what you can control and what you cannot control. Can you share that with us? <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, uh, after the dissolution of, of Aptera, you know, I began sort of soul searching and, and trying to understand, uh, you know, what I could have done better, you know, why is the universe this way? Or, you know, maybe even for a moment, even playing the victim. And that's that's when I discovered Stoicism uh, and Stoic philosophy, which I've been uh, a passionate follower of since. But really, um, what that then helped me discover was the idea of emotional intelligence and the study of emotional intelligence. How much work that's being done on that, and a lot of the the basic tenets of emotional intent of emotional intelligence are grounded in Stoicism. And so it turns out that today, one of the single most determining factors of a person's success in the workplace is their level of emotional intelligence. And I think that's fascinating because on one hand, it's so critical. And on the other hand, it's, it's not taught in schools. It's not taught in the home. It's not taught in the churches. It's not really taught anywhere. And so I think some people have, have studied it and developed it. And there, there's even tests where you can screen you know, potential employees or help train them, et cetera. 
but we don't have this um, this global national understanding of how important emotional intelligence it is. And so I've I've made it sort of one of the things uh, that I'll stand on my soapbox about, and that we'll integrate into Aptera, just so that we can create an environment where people love to be there, where they like to get along with each other, where they understand. Uh, boundaries and respect limits, you know, without the tyranny of enforcement, but simply by recognizing that this is the best way to interact with your fellow human beings. I recognize that also in 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 developing parts of the world, as I mentioned, that I think a lot of people, because they they're not so connected or shackled to technology like we are, they actually have a better read on human beings and negotiating. You're sitting across the table from someone and you're looking at their face, you're, you're watching their emotions and actions. I think people in the highly developed Western countries like the United States or Western Europe, we're the worst at it. We're terrible negotiators. Uh, we are so uncomfortable. We were so addicted to speaking and technology that we can't even stand a 15 second or 30 second pause in a negotiation when the other party stops talking and just remains silent for 30 seconds, it drives Westerners crazy. They lose their mind. They're almost willing to sign any deal at that point. But it's a common tactic uh, throughout the rest of the world. And so these are some of the things that, that I learned while uh, doing deals overseas. So then you, you come back, you decide it's time to pack the bags there in Abu Dhabi. And you return back to California. And, uh, you know, definitely, you know, something sparked the interest to pick up the phone, call Chris, your original co-founder in, in Aptera, and, and explore what's possible. So what, what triggered that? Well, I mean, Chris and I, we're like brothers, you know, we're brothers from another mother. We're both from the South. We have the same sensibilities. He's as opposite as me in many ways. You know, he's a finance guy. He's more gregarious and outgoing. I'm an engineer. I'm more reserved. As a management team, we we have this synergy between us that makes us really greater than just two people, and so we work really well together and make sure that we we uh, we don't drop things. Well, so we never really lost touch. You know, we always stayed in touch through the years. And um, he knew I was coming back. I got settled, and we had a barbecue or something. We were talking about this, and and he mentioned that some of the IP was uh, was available and. Uh, he was thinking that maybe we should look into securing it. And so we said, well, why would we do this? Why would we even restart the idea of, of an electric car company with Tesla being so popular? So I, I did some MATLAB calculations and you know, began reviving the old models with some of the newer energy densities. And Because I haven't thought about it since we left the company because I thought it was just a part of my life that was over. But once we started thinking about it again and looking at the numbers, it was really compelling. I, it was more compelling than it was 10 years ago because now people people have accepted electric vehicles and they want them. But you know, we recognize that that the cost is really primary, primarily determined by the amount of batteries, and also the range is determined by that too. And those are the two main factors that drive the sales. So if we could control those and increase the range and reduce the cost of the batteries by needing fewer of them, then I thought we would have a very compelling business plan. And so uh, we decided to do it. Haven't looked back. So then you got back again with uh, Aptera. And uh, what was that process like? I mean, did you guys have to purchase back the assets? So, I mean, what, what was the process of, of, of really getting Aptera back up? 
we we reacquired some of the IP, uh, but really it was it was a start from scratch um, with sort of the tribal knowledge, you know, that we could uh, that we could uh, that we could remember and and developing new knowledge along the way. Uh, so we made lots of improvements, you know, at a very technical level with things like the body and the assembly and that kind of stuff. We made a lot of improvements of what we had when we left the company. But a lot of the engineers that were involved, uh, they had moved on, but they still wanted to be a part of the new Aptera. And so even to this day, you know, we have people, I mean, we have people, uh, one guy that left SpaceX to come work for us. We have uh, former employees that are employed at other EV companies that uh, are leaving to come back to us just because they are so passionate about this and believe that this is the right way to do it. And also they believe it's a story that's unfinished and they want to help write the story. They want to help make sure it's a success. So for the people that are listening, I mean, how would you describe, you know, what's the, what's the new Aptera? I mean, what, what kind of vehicles are you guys putting together? Well, the primary difference between the old Aptera and the new Aptera is that we're a solar electric vehicle. And the solar power and solar integration of the cells into the body and the electronics and how that is stored into the, the battery pack is part of our new DNA. It's part of our new IP. And it's, it's part of our IP such that every vehicle that we make will have this. Every vehicle that we make, there's a product pipeline beyond the vehicle that you see now. Every vehicle we make will have the benefit of lightweight, low drag aerodynamics, which means the solar cells can actually help move the needle. They can actually help add an appreciable amount of range to the vehicle. So I'd say the primary difference is the old Aptera was, you know, we were arguing, our board said, well, we have to have a hybrid, we have to have a gas power. And Chris and I were both, no, it has to be all electric because that's the future. And, uh, and so that we we're already splitting our resources at that time that were just setting us up for failure. So now there's laser focus. We are only an electric vehicle company. That's all we'll ever be because that's the future. And on top of it, we're a solar electric vehicle company because we're so efficient that we can actually save 20, 30, maybe up to 40 miles a day into the battery just by being parked in the sun. So most people will probably never have to charge it or charge it that often. So it's a huge improvement in quality of life. It's a reduction of batteries. It's more efficient, more affordable per mile. It's, it's just better in so many ways. So for the company, how much capital have you guys raised to date? And maybe we can count on on what the old Aptera also had raised. Yes, yeah, so the old Aptera, um, I forget how many tranches we had in the old Aptera, but when Chris and I left, we handed over the keys. I think we had raised almost $50 million at the time. And I think there was about $20 million in the bank or so uh, when, we, no, when we left. To date for new Aptera, we've raised... Uh, just about $6 million, and we're starting our next round in March, which is a Reg A+. It's a different kind of financing. It allows for private investment and also crowdfunding, or crowdfinancing, uh, crowd investment, I should say. Uh, and we expect, uh, we intend to raise uh, about $50 million in that round. So we're going from six to 50 with this next round. We're looking at some other alternatives. Uh, of course, everybody is 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 SPAC crazy today, and we've been approached, and you know we've got a team of people that are helping us evaluate our options with that. At a basic level, we have the Reg A Plus uh, that starts uh, that that launches in March, and that's um, 
that provides the financing to actually get us in production. Nice. So, so I guess, uh, imagine if you, you know, we're going to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of uh, Aptera is fully realized. What does that look like? Uh, <laughs> I tell you, it doesn't look like our trip yesterday. Uh, we, uh, we drove up uh, to Los Angeles to have a business meeting, Chris and I did, in the world's most popular electric vehicle. Uh, but, you know, we had to stop and charge twice. Um, and that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. You can stop and, you know, maybe take a meeting or eat or something like that. But um, in an Aptera, we'd be able to go up and back on one charge. We'd actually, I think we might even be able to go up to San Francisco and back in one charge. So I think what it's going to be for most people to wake up and Aptera is everywhere is that you're not going to have to plug in your car all the time. Your car is going to be, pl- it's going to be topped off by the sun. It's going to be extremely fast. It's going to be efficient. It's going to cost you less, which means you're paying less per month in the payment for your car. Uh, and it's just going to look like the future. It's not going to look like a bunch of regular vehicles that have been converted to electric. It's going to look like what people think electric vehicles should look like, shapes that are driven by efficiency. And that efficiency saves you money and makes you go further. Do you think that we are entering into a new era where every single vehicle is going to be electric? I think so. You know, oil has lots of uh, lots of positive attributes. It is energy dense. It's used for plastics. Um, you might say it's it's a better use for oil for plastics and things. Maybe that could be reused and recycled rather than just burned, like in oil. Um, and I think environmentally, uh, people are just coming around to the fact, even very traditional people, that you know, burning this stuff to move around is it's just not a good idea. And there's going to be some places where it's still allowed, uh, but that shouldn't be that shouldn't be used as an excuse for inaction. In fact, I think it should make us double down and help bring about the change much quicker. Because I think the whole world benefits when we when we move to electric powertrains and all the vehicles. And there's so many areas in the emerging economies, I should say, where they're just blessed with bountiful sun. And yet they're importing diesel fuel and gasoline to run, you know, tuk-tuks and other two-stroke vehicles up and down the roads and polluting the air and polluting the ground. And there's just no excuse for it. We can do better than that. And I think that I think the integrated solar technology with lightweight vehicles and aerodynamics is a way to do that. And electrification is the key. So so imagine now. Steve, you know, I'm able to take you into this time machine and we have the possibility of going back in time. We go back in time to that moment where you got together with Chris and you guys were thinking about launching a business, your first business. Imagine where that younger self actually listens because when we're younger, we don't, we don't really tend to listen that much. But imagine that younger Steve actually listens and you have the opportunity to give that younger Steve one piece of business advice. What would that be and why before launching the business based on what you know now? I would say read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, understand it, and find some senior sage people, executives who also understand that and that can help guide you that are that are on your side. They're not they're not board members appointed by investors. Uh, or independent advisor that they're in your camp, they're there to guide you and help you, and also to to recognize that you have to unsheath your sword 
and fight your way out of situations in ways that a naive person may not think they need to. So I would uh, be far more assertive and dangerous in that regard. I love it. So, Steve, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You know, they can, uh, gosh, we have Instagram, uh, we have Twitter, we have Facebook. They can always leave messages there. Um, they want to send us an email. It's info at aptera.us, and it'll go through all the filters and get to who it needs to get to. Uh, but that's the easiest way. Um, and, uh, yeah, check us out. I think we have, we have got a great PR team who is you know, taking images and videos and things we're doing all the time and posting it and just creating lots of excitement, lots of momentum about what we're doing. And um, it's good for them to go and check out the visuals and the audio and the video and, and just see what we're doing because it's changing all the time. Amazing. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.